Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. This week, we're going to do something a little different. Instead of having our usual guest, we're going to have Fred be our guest because Fred wrote in 2016 an interesting book uh, that actually deals with what we're seeing here at current events in, in 2020. Uh, his book is called Tainted by Suspicion, The Secret Deals and Electoral Chaos of Disputed Presidential Elections. And we thought that it was perfect to talk about this, given the all the controversy over the 2020 presidential election, uh, to give a little overview of elections of the past, many of which I think Americans today don't know much about, but had a huge consequences at the time. It's it's really amazing, Fred, especially going over your, your book and an article you wrote for Daily Signal back in 2016, uh, just how many elections have had a huge cloud of dispute, including your, your famous phrase, which of course was uttered by Ulysses S. Grant about the 1876 election, that it had been tainted by suspicion. So Fred... Are election controversies like this particularly uncommon in American history? Oh, well, yeah, I, I tend to think that the uh, most unprecedented thing about this presidential election is how many times people have said unprecedented. Uh, because <laughs> uh, it, you, you just keep hearing that. Uh, if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or probably read the New York Times, uh, th- this has you, you get the impression that a challenge of an election has never been done before. Just 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago, that, uh, that this actually happened with Bush v. Gore uh, in Florida. Uh, this year, uh, in a lot of ways, is a lot more, um, this election's a lot more like the 1876 election, I think, in the sense that it's being challenged uh, in multiple states. Uh, this year, of course, it's uh, Georgia, where they're doing a recount, um, Pennsylvania, where there's litigation and lawsuits going on, um, Arizona, where they dropped some lawsuits, or Michigan, we, had, we saw this uh, recent controversy, Wayne County, first they weren't going to certify, then then they decided to certify for a compromise, uh, and, and, apparent, and some apparent bullying that, that occurred with the uh, Republicans on the certification board there. But, uh, but you, you had similar shenanigans back in 1876, and the states uh, that being contested were South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, and and this odd predicament, there was one uh, electoral vote being uh, contested out of Oregon. Um, but yeah, it, it, um, in, in the case of 1876, it didn't go through the courts entirely, though the Supreme Court did have a role in that. Uh, there were, on this bipartisan electoral commission, there were actually five Supreme Court justices. And uh, some of the state courts did rule, uh, make some rulings uh, before it went before this uh, uh, electoral commission. So, uh, so, so you did have a uh, sort of a mix, and 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 I would also say 1876, that was a less litigious time than uh, 2000 and 2020 when things are typically settled in courts. Yeah, yeah, that is very interesting, Fred. I think it it definitely is a, a mark of, of the times that. In the 19th century, most of our political disputes, it was assumed that the legislatures uh, or 
Congress would essentially solve those disputes as they basically did uh, in 1876. Nowadays, we are more apt to uh, shovel things through the courts up to the Supreme Court level, which of course shows that the growing power of the Supreme Court and why it's such a, an important issue now in the politics of 2020. But I am very much amused, especially as you said, you know, if you turn on CNN or MSNBC or most of these networks, you know, you have a number of commentators say, well, this this is so shocking. We have a disputed election. This is this is the end of democracy. And I would say, actually, in some ways, this is this is very much democracy in action. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the, the kind of chaos that you get. And, and and of course, high passion is very much a mark of democracy. I mean, if we wanted a a stable and sedate uh political system i mean we just have a monarchy we do monarchy we just uh let, let the uh the line of secession go to who the to the next in line the next kin and and have at it but uh this has been the case throughout our history even though the united states has had i would say probably the most stable and successful political system uh in the world there have been so many disputes even going back to the earliest days of the republic and that's kind of where I want to start with this, Fred, I mean, you had this great piece that you wrote in 2016 about five disputed elections, and you start off with the 1800 election, which I, I think nearly led to the end of the Republic. Can you talk about that a bit, Fred? Yeah, yeah, and, and that, that's, that's the first election um, featured and tainted by suspicion, uh, the, the book on the disputed elections, uh, and it gets into, that's actually the second uh, contested election, and I'm American history contested presidential election uh, because George Washington was, of course, elected twice by acclamation. But of course, uh, and and you had a uh, it was very close between Jefferson and Adams in 1796. Adams won uh, in the rematch in 1800. Jefferson actually won rather convincingly. Uh, he had a running mate pre 12th Amendment, uh, so the president and the vice president. Uh, did not run on a ticket together. Uh, it was presumed that these runner-up, as was the case with Thomas Jefferson, would become the vice president. Uh, it, it was this botched effort where they were uh, supposed to, one person was supposed to withhold his vote from Aaron Burr. Uh, he did not, and so so you had Aaron Burr uh, ended up being tying with uh, Thomas Jefferson, 73 to 73 in electoral votes. That sent it to the House. Now, the Federalist uh, House members, they got wiped out in the, that election, too, pretty much. But they they were still in office uh, well into 1801 um, and, and to March, I believe, at the time. And then uh, this was uh, a lot of them were believed that they could make mischief. Uh, Aaron Burr seemed like a very unprincipled guy, and, and they thought that he would be pretty malleable, especially if the Federalists were the ones who put him in office. Uh, and they they really seriously thought about this. It ended up uh, Alexander Hamilton basically uh, talked the Federalist members of Congress out of this. He, of course, did not like Aaron Burr that contributed to um, his ending demise, I would say. But uh, but yeah, uh, Alexander Hamilton was uh, instrumental in costing Aaron Burr the presidency uh, and later the governorship of uh, New York. As it happened, so the, that that was that was a, an odd election. It was different from the others, I would say, in that um, the, the others that are covered and tainted by suspicion, because uh, you had 
1824, which we'll, we'll talk about also, uh, 1824, 1876, and 2000 were all elections where you had basically competing candidates. 1800 was this odd situation where you had two candidates of the same party, uh, and the election went into overtime and basically had uh, it went from being Adams versus Jefferson to Jefferson versus Burr. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Of course, had the the rules stayed the same, the Twelfth Amendment never been passed. It's like having uh, you know, 2016, we have uh, Donald Trump as president, and Hillary Clinton <laughs> as vice president. It, it yeah, was definitely a uh, change there, right? that was, I, I think, very necessary, especially in the, the rise of political parties. Uh, that that distinction be made. So it does create, you know, of course, you know, the Constitution. You know, I don't think anybody would say it's absolutely perfect. They went about changing it in the way that it's supposed to be changed. It, it was a pretty, I think, uh, universally uh, supported constitutional amendment to change it. But it is quite a dramatic election, even though it's very different to a certain extent than modern elections that are much more partisan. Uh, you know, this first time in history you really had one party basically replace another one. Uh, in power and had that peaceful transition of power. So there was definitely a lot of uh, passion at the time, despite the dispute, uh, which led to, of course, Jefferson's famous inaugural where he said, you know, we were all Republicans, we were all Federalists uh, trying to unite the country, even though the country was in many, many ways very much divided, the idea that, well, we were all Americans, we're going we're gonna to stick by this election no matter what. So, so definitely... Uh, set in course, uh, the United States yeah. that would we would ultimately resort to to ballots instead of bullets to resolve our disputes, even if those disputes were very ugly and uh, and fraught and contentious. So certainly, yeah. I think it's reasonable to to say that's one of the most consequential elections in our history. Yes, and and I mean to people who aren't happy about this going into the courts, yeah, I mean what's the alternative, right? That's um, <laughs> yeah, I mean it either it either gets litigated or people will fight it out in the streets. I mean, we've seen some, we did see some violence from Antifa and so forth after the election, but um, I mean, nothing at a, any kind of grand scale like you might see in some other countries where things spill out into the streets and people have power struggles over who gets to lead the country. Absolutely. So let's get to the, to the second uh, election you had on your list, which I, an election I find incredibly interesting, the 1824 election, which, again, was actually unique in, in American history in that the election went to the House of Representatives because there was no uh, official winner of the Electoral College. There were so many different candidates uh, who got enough, just enough votes to actually get into that running. There were, three, of course, three candidates who uh, made it into Electoral College. Uh, the election did not go to the person who had won the most votes during the election. It actually went to the guy second line. Can you describe the eighteen twenty four election, Craig? Yeah, um, yeah. It turned out um, Andrew Jackson actually won a pretty good. I, I think something like forty three percent of the popular vote in a uh, three way or you know, actually a four way race. Sorry. Uh, it, it became a three-way race after the election when it went to the House. Uh, William Crawford was still technically a candidate. Uh, he got enough uh, electoral votes to uh, be, you know, the top three the House would decide <laughs> among. But it, was it shows really, a, a very different time. Well, William Crawford, yeah. by the way, actually a suffered stroke. a stroke during the campaign. Right. It was nearly an invalid, uh, and yet he was still 
running for president. Obviously, wow. he wasn't going to have any chance at that point. But shows a lot of people around the country had no idea that he was as sick as he was. Yeah. Well, Martin Van Buren was running his campaign. It shows you what a political mastermind Martin Van Buren was. <laughs> he was like a Karl Rove or David Axelrod or something uh, of his time before he became president, before he ran for off his own, his own. But also was interesting about 1824 is that the Federalist Party by this point, well, it was it wasn't its death throes. It was not entirely eliminated, but it was basically a non-entity. There were a few members of Congress that identified themselves as Federalists, but it was almost irrelevant. Uh, most everyone, John Quincy Adams, uh, identified himself within the uh, Democratic-Republican Party uh, of Jefferson, basically, by this point, which shows you how much things had changed over two decades. Uh, everyone was basically of the same party. Uh, it was the what was called the era of good feelings. You, you had uh, three consecutive, uh, just given the setting here, you had three consecutive two-term presidencies, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Um, that that didn't happen again, by the way, until you had Clinton, Bush, Obama, uh, three consecutive uh, two-term presidencies. Um, and, um, but yeah, uh, uh, but the air of good feelings kind of turned into uh, a sense that people were, became angry and frustrated with Washington. They thought Washington was out of touch. Washington had become corrupt, a good old boy system. Um, and along came Andrew Jackson, who, uh, you know, he, he was a military hero, but, but in a lot of ways, uh, I, I say in, in tainted by suspicion, I say that, uh, he was uh, Andrew Jackson was in many ways the Don, Donald Trump of his day because he was uh, he ran against the Washington machine. He uh, used very colorful language. He was able to get away with things uh, politically that a lot of people never could. Uh, the public was willing to give him, uh, him a pass on a lot of things, and um, he he ended up winning, uh, seemingly winning, uh, and and. Um, pretty well this uh, popular vote. He had a plurality of the Electoral College votes, but uh, not a majority. That's why it went to the House. Uh, and that's where Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House from the great state of Kentucky, <laughs> uh, he uh, pretty much uh, threw it to John Quincy Adams. Uh, now, John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay uh, are known to have met uh, this was called, uh, people said this was a corrupt bargain. There's a lot of doubt about that since that day. Uh, there, there's almost, um, given the, the amount of power Henry Clay had as House Speaker, he had a lot of influence. Uh, it, he did not like Jackson from the beginning. He was no fan of Andrew Jackson. He didn't like his style. He didn't like his policies. Pretty much, John Quincy Adams was pretty much in line with uh Henry Clay's views on infrastructure, the American system, getting a sort of national economy and so forth. So it, it's, it was almost inevitable from the beginning that Henry Clay would send the election to John Quincy Adams. However, this was a rallying cry for Jackson and Jackson's supporters. They called this was the corrupt bargain. This is just further proof of how disgustingly corrupt Washington is. And it became this route. The Tennessee legislature uh, nominated Jackson uh, for president uh, in 1825, which you know, was three years before the 
actual presidential election. And, and it was basically a three-year campaign in which uh, uh, his supporters galvanized support. That's when the aforementioned uh, Martin Van Buren became a Andrew Jackson guy. He saw where the political winds were blowing. And uh, he jumped on that bandwagon, basically. And and then you had Andrew Jackson's victory and what was the the basically the birth of what became known as the Democratic Party. Yeah, it really is a fascinating stuff, especially, of course, the political fate of Henry Clay, who was one of the most powerful men in America, was Speaker of the House, was the youngest Speaker of, House, of the House in American history. Um, as you said, he really, he really had no reason politically to vote for Jackson. Jackson was uh, basically a much more, I, I guess for the, in the terms of the day, a limited government guy. He did not support the uh, national system of uh, tariffs and infrastructure projects that Henry Clay supported. And Clay, in fact, I think he had a speech after uh, Jackson took Florida c- comparing Jackson to Julius Caesar unfavorably. So there doesn't seem to be much of a reason. I think it seems like Clay really misstepped in that he became John Quincy Adams' secretary of state, which right. in those days was yeah, that, considered probably... next in line for the presidency. It's not like modern times where your president's successful, the vice president steps. In those days, the secretary of state was really seen as the next in line. And because he took that job, which didn't end up very well for him, I think he, he no. had a pretty miserable time yeah. as secretary of state. He had this accusation of the so-called corrupt bargain, which from everything I've read from all the historians I've read is not really true, but it, it smacked of being true to, to the oh. majority of the American people. It looked bad. It was not a good look. Right, right. Uh, the, the fact that he even met with uh, John Quincy Adams was probably not a good look. Uh, the fact that he took the job. Um, now, Henry Clay had said that he did have some reluctance in taking that job, uh, because of the how he was aware of how that might look, uh, but but he also said that uh, he could he felt that he could hardly turn down the man that he had made president uh, and and refuse that job from him. So which which I can see that rationale as well. It, it is interesting, uh, even in victory for John Quincy Adams, he had basically a, a terrible presidency. Yeah, the four it, years he was being undermined. He had essentially a lot of people who were favorable to Jackson working in his administration. He was very uh, – a problem. Exactly. And and it, it seemed to really build when Jackson – when his supporters thought that the, the presidency essentially had been stolen from them, it allowed them to create a groundswell of support uh, for the 1828 election. It's, it's, it's almost as if John Quincy Adams never really got – his fair chance at the presidency because there was such a, a cloud hanging over it and because he really didn't have a, a huge amount of backing. I mean, people people respected John Quincy Adams, but he didn't have the kind of passionate love or hate that Jackson did. It seemed with Jackson, you either loved him or you hated him. Uh, but there was a lot of passion, not so much for John Quincy Adams, which really made him suffer in the 1828 election. Yeah, yeah. Basically, um, when – for, for, for that time period when there were no uh, really competing political parties, uh, the, the nation was essentially divided, philosophically divided based on are you pro-Jackson or are you anti-Jackson? Uh, and, and, and eventually you did have the, the National Republicans and later the Whigs that, that emerged to challenge the Jacksonian Democrats, later just the Democrats. But 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it was basically Jackson was just as such an overwhelming personality, and and that that in a sense he he was very much like Trump. Um, I, but as you said, I mean, there's in some ways you could, could probably compare the presidency of uh, John Quincy Adams to Trump in some sense that there was this constant sense of people declaring him illegitimate for his entire time in office, trying to constantly undermine him at every turn. Uh, so I, I mean, that's, that's a, uh, I, I think there's a lot of historical comparisons to be made on both sides. Yeah, for sure. So let's get to the 1876 election, because I think actually, if you ask the average American what they think of the 1876 election, I, I don't think they could maybe even name the candidates, but this is really one of the most dramatic elections in all of American history. I believe it still holds the record for highest turnout of uh, of, of voters uh, in American history. I think there was something like 82% of registered voters, which is staggeringly high. Uh, a, a decade after the Civil War, that was probably the most contested in our history and probably the closest to a, an election being I mean, you can even say in many parts of the country, illegitimate. Talk to us about this uh, this incredible election, Fred. Well, yeah, uh, this is um, this this election. Um, I I would say um, g- giving some backdrop here as well. Uh, this was um, a little over a decade after the end of the Civil War. There was actually a feeling uh, going into 1876 uh, that there was going to be sort of this year long centennial celebration about America, that America was in some ways sort of coming together after this awful, bloody conflict. Uh, and, and, and that you did have uh, these, these two candidates, they were, they didn't really disagree on that much. Um, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was the uh, governor of Ohio. He was a reform minded uh, Republican, uh, sort of moderate Republican, but conservative on fiscal and pro-business issues. Uh, you had the New York governor, Samuel Tilden, uh, who was sort of a, in some ways, a conservative Democrat, maybe sort of a forerunner to what Grover Cleveland was philosophically. Uh, he he took on Tammany Hall. He was, um, yeah, he, he, he didn't believe in that old machine style uh, corruption, and and that's why he became the presidential nominee. He he was seen as this a uh, sort of heroic reformer, and so um, and 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 then the the election happened, and the country was just thrown into division. It looked like uh, Rutherford B. Hayes went to bed that night believing he had probably lost the election, uh, and Samuel Tilden thought he had won, uh, but uh, Daniel Sickles, who who was a, a Republican operative. Uh, started actually looking at the telegraphs and the results coming in, uh, started uh, telegraphing uh, these other uh, Republican operatives and, and governors. Some of them were military governors in states like South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana uh, about if you can hold your state, Rutherford B. Hayes can be president. Uh, and um, this is actually where the, the book gets its title, uh, uh, which uh, during the heat of the 1876 dispute, President Grant wrote uh, one of his generals to say, quote, no man worthy of the office of president should be willing to hold it if counted in or placed there by fraud. Either party can afford to be disappointed in the results, but the country cannot afford to have the results tainted by suspicion 
of illegal or false returns. I basically felt like that was a characterization that may be applied to all of these elections because we, we talked about the uh, certainly the 1824 election. People felt like John Quincy Adams was there because of the corrupt bargain. In this case, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes finally did win, uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, after uh, an electoral commission um, with five House members, five senators, and five Supreme Court justices. Uh, and then that was that had to be decided ultimately by Congress. Uh, and and th- then also the Bush v. Gore uh, in 2000. I mean, there were a lot of Democrats that felt that uh, Bush was put in office through some sort of chicanery. Uh, I am sure that you're going to have close to half the country uh, if, if Joe Biden, which it looks that way right now, uh, ends up being president, uh, will feel that he was put there through fraud. So uh, these were presidencies that were in some ways tainted by suspicion, I think. Yeah, it, it, I think it is interesting, especially given at that time, I mean, a lot of ballot security was not fantastic. I mean, there was a lot of accusation of ballot stuffing. and I mean, in those days, you had a lot of places where you didn't have official ballots. I mean, people could just, you know, put on a piece of paper who they're voting for. You had parties, Republicans putting out me, a Democrat ballot with all Republicans on it and vice versa to try to trick voters. Yeah, yeah, had- there, there was actually immense uh, voter fraud in in uh, and, and those southern states, and, and, and that, that's where Republican uh, you had um, uh, re- Republican boards that, they, that were appointed, uh, and in cases military appointed, uh, in those southern states uh, that threw out a lot of Democratic votes because they were, um, you had Democrats that were voting multiple times in those states uh, for Tilden. Uh, you also had massive, massive, uh, voter suppression by Democrats. And this is real voter suppression. It's not asking someone for a, a photo ID. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, suppression by violent lynching, uh, uh, violent attacks and so forth. So, so th- this was, I mean, this was a major problem. The, uh, we, people say that today that, um, the, the the vote totals came in that Samuel Tilden had a pretty sizable popular vote lead over Rutherford B. Hayes. There is no way to know what the real popular vote was in that election. It, it, was, it was just so fraught with problems, particularly in those southern states, the, the former Confederate states, where this was when Reconstruction was going on. Um, but yeah, the, this was uh, the Electoral Commission um, basically voted along eight to seven generally a party line vote um, to award all those uh, electoral votes to Hayes. And then it went to Congress. Um, Similar to today, if if this were to somehow go to Congress, the Senate was controlled by uh, Republicans. The House was controlled by Democrats. Um, And, uh, but but, uh, under the, uh, under the bill, this electoral commission that was passed, um, both houses would accept it. Um, but Democrats tried not to, they, they tried all numerous delay tactics. They thought that they could extend it over the deadline. Maybe the speaker of the house at the time, uh, actually thought maybe they could, uh, push it over the deadline, um, and force a new election. Even, um, other Democrats in the caucus weren't with him on that. And, and then, then you finally, you finally had basically right up to the cusp of the inauguration, uh, they decided uh, they approved the Electoral Commission's uh, recommendation and made Hayes the president. 
This only happened, though, after what was called the Compromise of 1877, um, where uh, you, you had some uh, you had uh, a group of Republican congressmen, uh, senators, and, and House members uh, meet with a group of Southern Democrats at the was a place it was a hotel called the Wormley House uh, in Washington D.C. And, and they basically hashed out this deal, worked on it all night. Um, and, and the bottom line was that uh, Hayes if Democrats would not support the delay tactics uh, in the House if Hayes would agree to uh, withdraw Reconstruction, uh, pull the federal troops out of the southern states. And so that basically happened. Uh, a lot of people uh, look to uh, hold Hayes in pretty low regard for making this deal and, and Republicans for making this deal. If you really consider what, what was the alternative, uh, uh, certainly if Samuel Tilden had become president, things would have been much worse uh, in the South. So, I mean, I, I, I think this was like probably the best alternative they could have turned to. Yeah, another so-called corrupt bargain that, to a certain extent, for the sake of the country, especially when you consider what had happened just a decade earlier with the Civil War, uh, you know, it's a, a case where, you know, both both solutions are bad ones, but sometimes you just, you really do have to take the lesser of two evils. Right, right. It's hard to see that the, the political situation at that time ending up, you know, sparkling. I mean, one way or another, I think Hayes was already considering a drawback of reconstruction policy. So he was already pretty moderate on that issue. Yeah. There wasn't a whole lot that they could have done. And the fact is, I mean, the country went, I mean, basically four months without knowing who the president was going to be, which is kind of, especially when we're talking about in just days after the 2020 election, people are saying, well, this is just ridiculous. And, you know, the president hasn't conceded and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is four months after a civil war, which, you know, half the country, nearly half the country split off from the Union, we have this incredible dispute. Uh, I could see why, you know, especially people who were living in 1876 thought that this was the most momentous uh, election in American history. And uh, obviously today it's, I think, not all that well known, but uh, it seems like that the country was really on edge. Uh, yeah, uh, Joseph Pulitzer, who's uh, of course known for the Pulitzer Prize, and and uh, was in the early stages of building up his uh, vast newspaper empire at the time. But uh, he he was also very active in democratic politics, and uh, he called for a hundred thousand armed Democrats to descend on Washington and demand that they put Samuel Tilden in the White House. Uh, you know, and in his phrase, to honor the wishes of the people, uh, and. Uh, you had other people marching through Washington uh, saying Tilden or blood. So yeah, there, there were people making these strong, you know, powerful threats if, if their guy didn't get in office. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you sort of see a little bit of that today. I mean, with the Antifa movement and so forth. Yeah. It's a, if anything, I, I think that the lessons of 1876 are the importance of course of, ballot security and, and trusting the votes that actually take place. I think that's incredibly important. Also the electoral college too. I mean, you know, we, there's so many talks about moving to toward a popular vote, 
mean, if there are irregularities, I mean, we do have a federal system based on the states. If there are irregularities and states have done a bad job and there are illegitimate votes or votes not being counted states, it's basically limited to those states rather than a larger problem. So uh, definitely a lot of lessons learned there in 1876 that was incredibly ugly, but uh, but the, but the but the republic survived. Uh, the republic survived and and went on despite uh, the mess that was created. Uh, let's let's move on a bit to well, nearly a century later to the next disputed election you have on your list, which is the 1960 election. More Americans today, of course, remember this one between uh, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon that Kennedy ultimately won. Uh, but this was not exactly uh, an undisputed election by, by any stretch. There were a lot of accusations uh, the improprieties had taken place. Can you can you describe that, Fred? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, uh, uh, I, I do have it in this book, uh, and it gets into that this was kind of a sort of an under-the-radar dispute. Uh, it's, it's kind of widely believed that this was sort of – the post-election here was sort of – widely viewed as one of Richard Nixon's finest moments. Uh, and, and in a sense it was, but, but there, uh, he did sort of give the approval for uh, Republican lawyers, Republican operatives uh, to really dig into this and, and look into some of the fraudulent things that were happening in Illinois uh, and in Texas. Um, and, 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 and there were actually a few sort of more minor lawsuits that were taking place. It, of course, did not go to the Supreme Court or uh, didn't reach the level of anything that we saw in 1876 or 2000. But uh, there was some post-litigation. There was actually uh, a a lot of people know the story about the daily machine, uh, dead people voting. Um, There there was actually a a reporter with the New York Herald Tribune at the time who was really digging into a lot of this stuff. And um, the New York Herald Tribune at the time was a very pro-Republican newspaper. Uh, and um, they were getting all kinds of scoops on this. Uh, and it was starting to get a lot of attention. Richard Nixon eventually asked the reporter not to cover this. Uh, and, and then the reporter uh, said, yeah, sorry, I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, and then Nixon actually contacted the Herald Tribune and the Herald Tribune newspaper basically killed it. Uh, said, "Yeah, we're not going to go into this anymore." Nixon believed that uh, it would make the country look weak and illegitimate in the eyes of the Soviet Union, which was a a, a major deal at the time. Uh, if if our if the U.S. elections looked illegitimate, then the Soviets could have a way of saying, "Yeah, they're not they're not a democratic country like they claim to be." Um, so 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 that that was a major major issue at that time. Yeah, it, it, it seems that the, the, the election, was it wasn't just simply in Illinois that you had accusations. It seems like there were a number of other states. Of course, Texas being among them, Lyndon Johnson uh, being a power broker there. Of course, a lot of accusations that, the, in fact, there it seems that there was a little bit of organization from Nixon and his campaign to potentially challenge a number of states, I think New Jersey was on the list too, where you had uh, disputed results. So it seems like Nixon was putting out feelers to possibly challenge uh, this election, but kind of thought better of it. Uh, you know, when 
through his campaign. Can you kind of describe that? It, it seems like it, it, Nixon was definitely uh, eventually conceded, but it seems like he was putting out some feelers. Yeah, he, he did. He did concede and fairly early, but yeah, he, he was essentially, yeah, putting out feelers. Um, some lower level uh, lawyers were doing sort of small, small level lawsuits, making some challenges. As you mentioned, um, Illinois, Texas, New Jersey, uh, where there were some irregularities. I mean, there were a lot of irregularities there. Uh, what, what we don't know is whether it really, uh, there, there have been studies, and I mentioned this in Tainted by Suspicion, that uh, there have been a couple of studies that sort of looked at what were pretty obvious fraudulent votes uh, and that determined Kennedy probably would have managed to win if he took those out. He might have like actually lost a popular vote, um, but um, but he he might have managed to still win the election, which uh, by an even even closer margin than he than he did. So that that was uh that was of course probably the the closest uh, up to that point. I think that had been the closest election, uh, just vote by vote. If one vote per precinct had switched, uh, it, it would have put installed Nixon into office. Would it be fair to say that there was definitely whether Nixon could have actually pulled this out? Definitely some uh, malfeasance taking place. Oh, yes. It seems that in yeah. Chicago, yeah, in particular, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was flat out corruption. I mean, the Daily Machine—they were—they uh, were putting dead people on the rolls. I mean, it, it was discovered that um, something like a hundred people uh, were marked down to have voted, and they lived in one house. Uh, and it was it turned out it was an abandoned house. Uh, there, yeah, there, there, there were just numerous things all across. Uh, similar in Texas, uh, LBJ stomping ground, where he, I mean, you would think they would win Texas with LBJ on the ticket. Not so. LBJ uh, had notoriously close elections in Texas, uh, and um, he, you know, he he won his first house seat by one vote, literally. So. Um, uh, so there, there was immense, uh, and 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 this was a time. This was a time. Uh, I mean, a lot of people try to say that there was this dramatic switch in the 1960s. It's important to know here, uh, Texas, as an example. This was a time when the South, going back to the 50s, maybe even earlier, um, certainly with Eisenhower, a lot of Southern states were starting to trend Republican, uh, and, and and some even earlier than that, uh, but. Post FDR, the South was starting to trend Republican, um, and that that's another story all in itself, though. But yeah, we, um, uh, but yeah, I, it was clear there were problems galore out of 1960, and um, there I also have uh, in the book, um, it sort of as this incidental thing, but there was this odd situation out of Alabama. While we're talking about the South, odd situation in the state of Alabama in which um, people basically could vote for the Democratic ticket or a slate of electors, but they took Kennedy's name off because they didn't support his civil rights stance. So at the same time, the uh, Democratic governor at the time calls for people to vote Democrat in, in order to make a strong stance against those rascally Republican civil rights positions. So. Yeah, it was an odd time. It was an odd time. No kidding. And it is worth noting that Nixon 
did quickly con- concede this yeah. election, but he was a fairly young man at this point. It seems yeah. that to a large extent he was definitely trying to set up a, a future presidential run yeah. at this time, disputing as he did and, and yeah. ultimately won in, in 68, uh, had a lot of political reasons to to bow out and then yeah. uh, well, reignite his, his presidential ambitions for the future. Yeah, it's believed that um... – John Mitchell, who of course went on to be a notorious figure, but at the time just a uh, a longtime Nixon political advisor, told him uh, after the 1960 election, uh, as they were counting votes, that uh, Democrats stole this fair and square, uh, and and you just got to kind of move on. There's no challenging it. So uh, that's something. I, yeah, and, and Nixon, he did run for. Governor of California in 1962, thinking that that could be his comeback. Uh, and that didn't work out, but he still managed to come back in, in 1968. And then, well, made some mistakes after that, but that's a whole <laughs> other story. So so let's get to our final one, because we've gone for a long time here. But, of course, one that most Americans today remember, which is the, the 2000 election, Bush v. Gore, famously coming down to Florida, of course, the – Hanging chads became a part of the American lexicon. Uh, for those who don't know, could you kind of explain what happened there with the 2000 election, how that ended up ultimately going to George W. Bush instead of Vice President Gore? Well, yeah, uh, that that's a very dramatic election in and of itself. Um, I think I think there are some similarities uh, to the 1876 in the sense that um, a lot of people viewed there not being that much difference between the two candidates. George W. Bush was considered a pretty moderate Republican. Al Gore was a somewhat centrist Democrat coming off the centrist Clinton-Gore ticket. Um, but uh, on election night, Gore ended up conceding uh, to Bush uh, until his campaign was informed that um, Florida triggers an automatic recount of, if it's below 2,000 votes. So uh, um, he, he was... He was stopped from giving his concession speech and then um, ended up calling Bush, unconceding the election. And uh, from there, it went on through courts. Uh, The Gore team was actually the first to bring it into state courts. Um, And they they fought to have basically um, they were saying rhetorically, the Gore campaign was saying, we want every vote to count. But then they were actually uh, only litigating for recounts in heavily Democratic-leaning counties because they were looking <laughs> to basically find more and more and more votes. Arguably, you, you could a person might say the same thing about Trump today, uh, that he didn't want to keep massive amount of, of ballots from coming in. Uh, but it did also seem that he wanted more votes counted in Arizona. So, I mean, that's Basically, how politics works, I guess. But, but yeah, uh, Gore's team was essentially uh, trying to find votes wherever they could. Uh, there was actually a point in this where Bob Beckel, who became a pretty famous pundit, but he was a, a Gore political operative at the time, he talked about quote kidnapping electors, uh, and basically <laughs> this was. Uh, they were going to try to dig up dirt on uh, Republicans who were in the Electoral College uh, and sort of kind of corner them. And you might want to vote for Al Gore when it goes to the Electoral College. But they, they kind of uh, a Wall Street Journal story uh, exposed that and, and, and then they kind of backed off that. But 
ultimately, uh, this worked its way through the state courts. There were a couple of different lawsuits, um, uh, and they got merged into one lawsuit when the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court took the case, um, Bush versus Gore. And from there, uh, the, the court ruled. Actually, um, everybody says it's 5-4. Uh, the initial decision was 7-2 that it violated the equal protection one man, one vote law. However, uh, there was 5-4 decision as to basically how to alleviate that, um, whether they should allow more counting and uh, or a statewide recount and so forth and so on. So, so yeah, um, basically after the court ruled, Gore's, most of Gore's legal options were spent and he conceded. But that was a 36-day election. Uh, we're not anywhere at, at the time we're recording this, at least, we're not anywhere near 36 days. Again, back to that unprecedented point. Uh, you, you had uh, 1876 went on for several months. 2000 went on for a little over a month. Uh, 1824 went from uh, went on up until February. So uh, same with 1800. So so this is we're we're not in uncharted waters. In all likelihood, the 2020 election is going to be decided. Uh, by December 8th, uh, and I, I would certainly uh, guess it's going to be decided by the time the Electoral College meets uh, on December 14th. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing can be said is Gore pursued every political and legal avenue uh, to victory before eventually conceding, I believe, on December 13th uh, to, to George W. Bush. He certainly he certainly fought it out as hard as he could uh, in as many ways as he could before finally uh, bowing out of that election. Well, Fred, thank you so much for, for talking to us about your book. It's it's very interesting, particularly noteworthy right now. Again, it's called Tainted by Suspicion, The Secret Deals and Electoral Chaos of Disputed Presidential Elections. Uh, it's definitely worth a, a, a read right now uh, and in the future. Uh, this is certainly not the first disputed election, and let's be honest, it, it likely won't be the last either. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time with it. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Right Side of History. You can check out our work on Apple Podcasts, the Ricochet Network, on iHeartRadio. And if you liked our show, please give us a five-star review. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.